G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. The 2020 Summer Series on Vision Christian Radio. Well, Neil, I think before I start, I should really um, reiterate that when I share my story, um, I really struggle, you know. I I struggle when I stand before an audience. Um, I've just come back, actually, three days ago from a month in South Africa. And it, it um, it never goes away, that feeling. I'm nervous beforehand. Um, I stand before them and I'm shaking a little sometimes, even after all these 11 years of doing it, because much of my story is is horrible. I'm I'm deeply ashamed um, of what I'm about to share. So I'm coming from that place. I'm coming from a place of my story in parts is really disgusting, really. It is. It's just horrible and stupid and ridiculous and filthy. And yet I'll keep sharing it because we get to the great part where I come to know Christ. But I think my earliest memories really is of freezing cold Scotland where I was born in, in Glasgow into a lot of poverty. And um, I remember an excitement building up as um, my mum talked about South Africa, this far-off distant country that we were going to go and live in. And my dad was in the Merchant Navy and he docked in Durban, South Africa one day, and uh, that was the time when they were getting us pommies to uh, come out to Australia or Canada or South Africa, and my dad just thought it would be a great idea for a, a new life. So we set sail, and I have vague memories of being on this big ship that we set sail in, um, and then my next memories are of warm sunshine and monkeys in the trees and um, blue skies and it was life was so different, and it was exciting. I, I felt like I was on the set of a Tarzan movie um, growing up. Um, and then, really, my life changed when my little brother was born, when I was six. And then it changed again uh, when I was ten years old. Um, when I was ten, my mum received a phone call from the UK to say that, you know, telling her that her father was dying of cancer. And they said to my mum, really, if you want to see your dad again, you, you need to come home quickly. He's going to die in the next few weeks. And so arrangements were made for my mum to travel back to the UK with my little brother, because it was free for him to fly in those days under a certain age. And I stayed in South Africa with my dad. And my dad was in the Durban City Police. Um, oh, my dad was my hero, Neil, like a lot of young boys with their fathers. Uh, he was always in the newspapers making high-profile arrests. Um, I would go to the shooting range with him and help him make bullets. And uh, I just I loved him so much. And um, I really missed my mom. And uh, the plan was we would be reunited after the funeral. Uh, either my mom and brother would come back to South Africa to our life there, or my dad would sell up our apartment and quit his job in the police, and then we would both go back to live in Scotland. Well, that never really worked out that way, really, because my father uh, was having an affair with another woman at work, and he used this opportunity 
just really to get rid of us as a family. And um, I remember the, the long holidays approaching in South Africa, uh, our long summer holidays, because it's back to front to the UK, I guess a bit like Australia, our long summer holidays at school were at Christmas time. And in the UK, they're in um, July. But Christmas time was approaching, and it was the last day of school. I was super excited because, well, we broke up on a Thursday instead of Friday. And I got a ride home in the police car with my dad, which was just really exciting. And then I remember getting to the apartment, and I can remember being a little bit confused. As my dad said to me, you know, you're a big boy now. You're 10 years old, and I know mum's away and your brother, and you're missing them, but I want you to be really brave. He said, I have to go to work, and I'm going to lock you inside. And if it gets dark, don't worry too much. Just put yourself to bed. You're a big boy. And with that, he locked me in and left. Well, I was really brave, Neil, for about two minutes, <laughs> uh, and then he was gone, and I was missing mum. And... Uh, there was a cheese sandwich on the side and a glass of milk, um, which I ate, and then I waited for my dad to come home. He didn't come home that night, and I kind of cried myself to sleep, if I'm honest with you. Uh, I climbed into my parents' bed and, and waited for him. I woke up in the morning, and I waited for my dad to come home, and he didn't come back that morning either. And now I was feeling hungry, and there was no more food. So I waited all day and all day and all day and all day, and he never came home. It got to that night, and again, I, I fell asleep. I was really hungry and fell asleep through my hunger. And the next day, the same. And the next day, and finally on the fourth day, I was so weak and weary. I hadn't eaten any food at all for about three and a half days. I was lying on the floor in the living room, kind of semi-conscious. And that's about the last thing I remember. The next thing I remember is looking up at the front door um, as the frame began to crack as it was kicked in. And then I was lifted off the floor. And um, next thing I woke up in some people's houses and I was in a bit of a state of confusion, really. Even though I knew the people, they were like aunties and uncles to me. Um, and uh, I discovered that my, my dad had run off and locked me inside there and, and wasn't coming back. So that's the earliest memory that I have. And those senses of abandonment that you get when you have that experience within your own family, they, as you say, it's hard to share because that sense of abandonment never leaves you. And uh, no doubt uh, you get emotional about that even today? Um. I did for years. I don't really struggle with it anymore because I'm, I'm in Christ. And, but I, I think maybe for years I did. Um, I think it was just not having your father there when he should have been. And that sudden loss, I guess it was almost like a bit of a grief of maybe, maybe losing a parent because he, he was gone, even though I knew he was alive. But, you know, he didn't get in touch with us after that. And... I think when you're a kid, it hits home more when it's your birthday or Christmas and, you know, you're waiting for the postman to bring you that card from your dad uh, or just trying to figure out, well, what happened, you know? Yeah. Was it me? Was, was I naughty? Did all those things a kid will go through. A biblical perspective of life, culture and current events. The 2020 Summer Series on Vision.
Um, at the same time this was happening, my mum, through uh, the verge of suicide, actually cried out to God and, and committed her life to Christ and become a Christian. And my brother and I thought she'd lost her mind and she got involved with happy clappies and what was all this gospel music. And uh, we thought she'd lost her mind. Um, she prayed for me every day and the more she prayed, the worse it seemed that I got. My goodness, Neil, I, I was now embroiled in this world of um, finding people that I met through a certain circle. I was working as a bodyguard with the Rolling Stones at the time, and I threw that career away because it was more lucrative to go after these gangsters. And yes, I, I did many brutal things. I, I have much blood on my hands, and I'm so glad we don't have time to talk about all those horrible things. But to cut that long story short, uh, the police now caught me. I'm thrown into jail for four years for extortion. And the, uh, about a month later, they caught the rest of the gang. They tried to make me give evidence against them by calling me as a compellable witness from prison. I was very rude to the judge and told him where he could put his evidence. And the judge thanked me and gave me a, a year and a half extra. So there I was, serving five and a half years in prison. The government seized all of my assets under the Proceeds of Crime Act, and, and well, so they should. In prison, all I could think of was more crime. I was in a high-security jail in prison. I got divorced when I was in prison because I caused my wife and family so much trouble. I was a real loser. Um, but in prison, I thought, well, good. When I get out of prison, I will go back and rob all of these people. Uh, I had a list of clients who were going to get it, and I was going to keep the money and not get commission this time. But in that prison, I made friends with a Nigerian man. He was different from the other prisoners. Um, there was one thing, though, I didn't like about him. He was a Christian, and he was always harping on about Jesus and God, a, a little bit too much for my liking. And every Thursday in that prison, there was a Bible study, a local pastor from a village called Dunblane, where there was a horrible massacre in a school a few years earlier. He took the time and effort to come into that prison and share the gospel with prisoners. Well, for four months, this Nigerian invited me, and for four months I refused, until one day he shared with me that um, the pastor brings with him nice cake and coffee and biscuits. And, well, I said, well, why didn't you tell me that before, you idiot? And I put my name down, and I went along to this Bible study with the intention of stealing as much cake and coffee and biscuits as I could get my hands on. Well, I did know one thing about you Christians, and that is when you pray, you close your eyes. This was my opportunity to steal, and... Um, I was so disappointed, though, because this pastor moved us all to the other side of, the, of this room, and he got a guitar out and handed out some song sheets, and I was thinking, oh, no, here we go, hallelujahs and kumbayas, I can see it now. All I wanted was my cake and coffee. But I tell you, Neil, God did something in that moment, because I looked at these other hardened criminals, murderers, lifers, drug dealers, bank robbers, and there was this violent animal sitting there amongst them, and these men looked happy. It was weird. Why are you looking happy? You're in prison, for goodness sake. They began to raise up their hands, and they sang a song that I'll never, ever forget. It's my favorite song of all time, because in that moment, I broke, really. It was a song called Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. And, well, I'm looking at the lyrics, and I knew I was going to cry. I hid my face behind the song sheet, because I didn't want them to see me crying. Not, not in prison. And I cried like a baby, and I, I don't remember much more about that night. But the next morning, the guards unlocked my cell, and there's the Nigerian standing there. And he, he had this habit of saying, hello, my friend, how are you today? <laughs> and I would say, well, I'm in prison. Why do you keep asking me that question? 
and uh, he had a Bible behind his back, which he thrust into my hands. I didn't want it, but I took it, and I threw it onto my bed in disgust. Well, that night, when I was locked up in my cell on that Friday evening, I opened the Bible for the first time in my life, and it just kind of fell open in the book of Ezekiel. And, and this is where I take the title from my book, really. I read in Ezekiel 18, 27 to 32, But if a wicked man, well, that was me, of course, if a wicked man turns away from all of the wickedness that he has committed, and if he does what is just and right, then he can save his life, he won't have to die. And then there's a complaint from God's children, the house of Israel, oh, the ways of the Lord are not just. And God says, no, is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, I will judge each one of you according to your ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. So, repent. Or rid yourself of all of the offenses you have committed, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Now, I don't know what those words mean to your listeners, Neil, but in that cell, when I looked at myself in the mirror, I was disgusted with myself. I felt ashamed of my life. I saw all the horrible blood dripping from my hands. All I knew was I wanted this new heart and new spirit. But I didn't know how to get it. How do you get this new heart and this new spirit? I didn't know what to do, how to do it. But I went back to the Bible study the following week, and I asked this pastor, how is this possible? How is it possible that this God can give someone like me a new heart and a new spirit? And, Neil, that pastor shared the gospel with me in such a simple way. I could understand because he spoke in, in, in terms of prison language and legality. It was a great way to reach somebody like me. He said, well, John, you committed a crime. You stood before a judge in court. The judge found you guilty and you were sent to prison. We, we call that justice. I said, well, yeah, tell me about it. Here I am. He said, well, one day when you die, you're going to stand before God on Judgment Day. Will you be guilty or innocent, heaven or hell? And I said, well, you know, maybe this God can, you know, he's supposed to be all lovely, isn't he, and nice and merciful. And maybe he can see that I'm not such a bad guy really underneath. You know, it's not all my fault, all the things I've did. I've made some bad choices, but haven't we all? And he said, well, do you think you're good enough to get to heaven? I said, well, I've done some good things as well, you know. I did give money to charity. I did rescue lots of people out of a burning building once and won bravery awards even from the police. So maybe God can see the good things I've done and let me off. He said, well, John, that's called bribery. You can't bribe God with your good works. You can't bribe God in the same way you couldn't bribe that judge in court. And God has to make a decision through your choices in life. Heaven or hell, John? And I said, well, I'm still not sure. Maybe heaven. And he asked me three questions to determine, to help me determine whether I'd be guilty or innocent. He said, how many lies have you told in your life? I said, well, too many to count. He said, well, then that makes you a liar. Have you ever taken anything in life that wasn't yours regardless of value? I said, well, yeah, of course. Well, that would make you a thief. And he said, have you ever murdered anyone, John? I said, well, no, I was thinking about it, though, but no, I didn't. He said, well, Jesus redefined words like murder, because Jesus said if you've hated someone in your heart, then you've murdered them in your heart. So you see, John, that's only three of God's Ten Commandments. If God was going to judge you just on these three alone, don't you think you'd be in trouble? And I said, well, yes, in that case, yeah. So heaven or hell? I said, well, well by that, I'm going to hell. They said, but you see, John, imagine when you were in court and the judge gave you a huge fine, let's say a million pounds, 
and you couldn't pay it. But a rich man stood up and he wrote a cheque for, for your fine and he paid your fine. The judge could let you go free because someone else paid your fine. In the same way, John, Jesus Christ came to this world and he lived a perfect life. And when he went to that cross, to die on the cross, to take the punishment you deserve, it's like he wrote a check for your life. Now, when you put a check in the bank, it takes about three days to clear. Well, guess what, John? After three days, the check cleared because God raised Jesus from the dead and he's alive today. And because he did that, are you aware of the legal implications in God's courtroom? I said, no. I was really curious now. I said, no. What, what legal implications? God can legally dismiss the case against you because Jesus Christ has paid your fine. And all you have to do to receive his grace and his mercy is be willing and want to turn away from the bad things. We call that repent. And say sorry to Jesus Christ. And the second thing you can do, surrender your life to him. Make Jesus your Lord and your Savior. And I promise you, if you do these two things, and you're genuine, God will give you a new heart and a new spirit through his Son, Jesus Christ. And only in his perfection alone will you be able to stand before God one day and be seen as righteous. And, well, I'll tell you, I understood that very, very clearly. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.